afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, joined today by Jim Anderson. He's my associate here at the Coming Home Network. Uh, thank you for joining us on this program. Uh, we're coming to you from the studios at the offices of the Coming Home Network. And if you'd like to connect more with our work, find out more what we do, you can go to deepinscripture.com. Uh, you can send us questions at deepinscripture.com. You can follow us on faith, Facebook and Twitter. I'm not a big Twitter person, but you can you can connect with our dialogue that we have going all the time about not only our work, but about our scripture studies. So you can check all the old programs. So I do appreciate you joining us. I guess we call this an in-between week. Jim, you're joining me to just couple, <laughs> a couple question, uh, a couple suggestions that we've received, uh, verses for us to discuss. A very good afternoon to everyone, and yes, raring to go. All right. Thanks, Jim. Uh, we do encourage you to send us some uh, verses to discuss. The, um, the theme of this series of programs on Deep in Scripture uh, focuses on hard verses. As I've mentioned before, back when I was a Protestant pastor, I categorized Scripture into three different groups— I looked at all of Scripture as inspired and infallible and the guide for our life, but recognized that there were certain verses, verses that were clear, seemed to need no further explanation. Uh, they just said it the way it was, and we were to listen to these Scriptures and guide our life by them. There was a second group of Scriptures that you might call cloudy, that they didn't automatically fit within our theology. So they needed an alternative explanation. And in many ways, this is why uh, sermons were preached. This is why there were commentaries written on Scripture. If the, if the verses were all clearly ex, uh, understandable, then why would we need further explanation? But there were verses that needed a little bit of additional information to make them fit within the rest of what we believed but there was also a third group of scriptures which we called stormy or hard, and that was because they didn't, even with some additional information, d d additional e description, they didn't exactly fit. We were never comfortable with these verses, and so and often they wouldn't be preached upon very often, if at all. Uh, and I have a, a list of these scriptures that I never touched as a Presbyterian pastor. And Jim comes from a Methodist background. And we had different sets of verses that were hard for a Methodist or for a Presbyterian. And the same would be true for a Pentecostal, a Lutheran, Episcopalian, a Church of Christ. The different groups of Church of Christ, the different groups of Baptists would have different scriptures that would be on the one hand easy for the other group but for other groups that were cloudy or hard. And that's... And then, also, and then also there were some scriptures that were just hard for everybody. <laughs> exactly. And, and the purpose of this program is in no way to demean the infallible scriptures, uh, the inspired word of God, but to demonstrate that scripture alone leaves problems. And that's what we want to address in this program is... On the one hand, to hopefully communicate a love for Scripture and a desire to study Scripture uh, every day. We should have time in the Word of God. But recognizing that, as it says in Proverbs 3, 5, 
And six, that on the one hand, we are to trust in the Lord with all our heart, but on the other hand, not to lean on our own understanding. And that's where, in fact, almost all the early heresies in Christian history came from, were men who were leaning on Scripture alone and putting their own interpretation above that of the church and of the deposit of faith that we have received from Christ through his apostles. So what Jim and I want to do today is we've we've chosen two different sections of Scripture. Uh, We were suggested, asked if we would look at these. And I'll begin first, Jim, and I'm going to look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Actually, to cover the whole section, I should be looking at verses 7 through 21, but it's a bit large to read on radio and to look at. I'll just look at verse 7 through 12. I'll start at Jim and then gladly ask you to add some of your own thoughts. Mm Mm-hmm. Let me read, and as I read this, those of you who are looking at the scriptures, or if you can't, you're just listening, I want you to think about all the different interpretations that might be, that might arise from these verses. Uh, And there are many layers of theology in these, this short paragraph. So let me read, I'm reading from the Revised Standard. And it's the Apostle John writing. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I might add one other verse from the following paragraph that would be the continuation in which John writes, if anyone who says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, Jim, as you listen to that, there are many layers of theology, and some are quite amazing. Uh, Verse 8, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Or before it, love is of God. He who loves is born of God and knows God. Underlying this is this idea that the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love are gifts of grace. They are not our natural abilities. Part of it is because we lost the full use of these natural abilities as a result of the fall of Adam. And so our consciences uh, have been tainted. Our wills have been tainted. And so our ability to love, to have faith in God, to hope in eternity, those are gifts of God. And so if we're, we believe that if a person has faith in God, then that is evidence 
that God's grace has touched their heart and mind to believe. They're not puppets. In other words, it isn't as if we had nothing whatsoever to do with it, though, again, there's a theological controversy because in my background as a Calvinist, I did believe that we were so depraved in our will that we couldn't do anything apart from grace. And that came from Luther and then through Calvin. But the idea that our ability to love is a gift of God, it comes from him first, and that gift is a gift of grace, and it is because God himself is love. Now, before I go in deep into that, how, how do you relate to that, Jim, from your background? Well, from my background, I really didn't have, there were no really, I wouldn't at first see any red flags in this, except I would wonder, what is John meaning by the word love? Right, and that's... Because in English, we can love God and love pizza. Yeah. And um, and what did, was he meaning by the word love? Greek made it more um, more obvious by the four different Greek words for love. But for an average English speaker, they're going, well, what does he mean? And that's where I wanted us to go with this. I, yeah. Before we got into that major question, I, I wanted to also look at some of the other areas there. But you're right, Jim. Um, mm-hmm. This There are a couple layers here. Then it seems mm-hmm. on the surface that in reading this, and if we read this further paragraph, that one would almost automatically put this section as a a clear right. verse. Um, it seems clear, in fact. Um, verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. That's basically John saying in different words what he said back in his gospel, John 3, uh, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would, would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's almost the same theology that's there. And there's more to it. You've got God sending his son, so we have Christ, Jesus Christ being the son of God. That theology is there. Um, and this idea that it isn't because we loved that therefore God responded. It isn't because of anything good that we did that we therefore earned God's love, which is what Paul writes against in Ephesians, for example. He says it wasn't because of anything good that the Christians had done back when they were pagans, but it was while they were still pagans, while they were still sinners, he says that in Romans, while they were still apart from God, God loved them. God sent the Son. God reached out to us. It wasn't because we deserved it. It was because he loved us. So there's all kinds of theology here. And and there's another aspect of it here also, uh, and that would be in verse 13. If we love one another, God abides in us, for his love is perfected in us. We can know we love God if we love our brothers and sisters. It's not just a vertical love. It is made manifest in our lives through our love for the body of Christ and for those even that are not part of the body of Christ. So we pray for and love our enemies. 
What we see in this passage is basically John giving a deeper theology to the commandment of our Lord that he gave both when he repeated the Old Testament Deuteronomical commands of love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then second, your neighbor as yourself, the great commandments. But then Jesus had reiterated those in the upper room in John 15 in the well-known vine and the branches uh, imagery when he says, I give you this new commandment that you'll love one another as I have loved you, so that the newness of that um, is that our Lord's uh, freely given love that he gave before we deserved it, regardless of whether we deserved it, he died on the cross for us long before, that that uh, model, if you will, is to be our model. In other words, we are to love others not because they love us or because they deserve our love, but because they are people for whom Christ died. Therefore, they do deserve our love because they have earned it in a way because of Christ's death on a cross. And so they ought to be loved by us. And he says later that if you say you have vertical love, but you don't have horizontal love, you're a liar. They go together. You can't have vertical love, love for God, and not love for neighbor. And he's also saying you can't have authentic love for your neighbor unless you've received it vertically from God. There are both ends. The way you love God is loving your neighbor. Because loving your neighbor is empowered by the grace of God who is made manifest through love. So again, this sounds simple enough, clear enough. We could speak long on this. We could preach many sermons. I'm sure there have been preached on this, <laughs> many commentaries. But as you mentioned earlier, Jim, there's a, there's a hardness to this because throughout history, the heresies that have arisen in the church, heresies meaning a little bit off the mark from what's true, if you will, maybe or some far, of them a little more off, the far mark. off the mark because of private interpretation. And the danger is once you lift yourself up as the authority to interpret Scripture for yourself, to believe that the Holy Spirit's guiding me and I'm listening to the Spirit and I'm interpreting the Scriptures better or more clearly for myself or for my congregation that I'm leading or for my family. Once we set up that private interpretation of the Spirit over against the church or any other church, or as the, as the, uh, the, the Presbyterians in England and Scotland said, that nobody else has any right to uh, infringe on my ability to interpret Scripture. The danger of that, especially in the area of love, leads to heresy. And the reason is that love is one of those wonderful gifts that God has given us that, you know, Jim, we, we talk about the materialists that, uh, beginning from Descartes and onward, that only believe that which you can prove, that which I can see, what I can feel. Well, that's love doesn't come into that category. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't hear it. You can only uh, experience its effects 
Yes, and ultimately, the type of love we are talking here, we can't usually feel it either. Yeah, and as you mentioned earlier, in the Greek language, there were multiple words for love that often all get translated as the word love in English. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful book on that called The Four Loves, and there's phileo, and there's er eros, and agape, and I forget, and storge. storge. And all of those can be translated by the English word love. We see this in John chapter 21 when, when our Lord is asking Peter if he loves him. And Peter says, yes, you know that I love you. And it goes back and forth for the three times that Jesus is giving Peter the opportunity to repent. But what we don't see in your English translation is that Jesus and Peter are using two different kinds of of words. Jesus is using the word agape, and Peter's using the word phileo. If I remember right, it's been so yes. long since I looked at the Greek. And, and so, and uh, the first two times Jesus says, Do you love me? He says, Do you agape me? And Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know I phileo you, meaning, You know I'm your friend. Finally, the third one, Jesus lowers the bar and says, Do you phileo me? Right. And Peter responds, yes, of course, Lord. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, there's an example of, you know, was, was Peter not being responding to the work of grace in himself? I mean, it's, it's the distinction doesn't come out in the English translation, so it's never something that people reflect on very much, mm. but, but C.S. Lewis did wonderfully in his book. But the point is, God is love, God is agape, is this verse 8 of First John, what does it mean? What does the word love mean? And as soon as we allow the situations of our life, the relationships in our life, the, the passions of our life uh, to have an influence on how we interpret Scripture, we are always in danger, especially with concepts like love forgiveness, jealousy, humility, and you name all these virtues or vices, as long as we allow ourselves the, the delusion that we have the ability by the Holy Spirit to interpret what it means for ourselves, we are also in danger of being blinded by these other influences, as they traditionally have been said, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these voices in our life can interpret us. A good example, just God is love. What does that mean? What does that mean? I remember back when I was in college, there was a very popular movie called the called Love Story. And oh, yeah. it, it was a very touching, tearful movie about two college students that fell in love. I think he was a, a doctor or trained to be a doctor, and I can't remember what. She just called him preppy all the time. But in that it's a love story. This whole thing was, uh, the, the movie was written and directed to convey a powerful, passionate experience of the love of these two people, which was a sorrowful experience because the, the girl dies in the story. Mm -hmm. But in the process, as she's dying of cancer, I think, um, she makes this statement which says, love means never having to say you're sorry. 
Now think about that. Does that is that a, a, a clear theological understanding of love? Does if we truly love the way God is love, does that mean that we must we never have to say we're sorry? for the way we've lived, for the way we've spoken, for the way we've treated people. Some might say, well, you're not getting what she was trying to say. The point is that people have taken that verse and defined a culture. Mm-hmm. People have taken other ideas on what love means. Um, I know a woman, uh, God bless her soul, she's no longer with us, who all of her life, she was dedicated to fighting against prejudice whether it came to racial prejudice or um, sexual prejudice. She always fought the battle as she was an engineer, and as a woman she got paid less than a man doing the same job. So all her life she fought for equality in the workplace between men and women. She also spent most, most of her life speaking against racial prejudice. And... Uh, She's, some of her best friends were the black women who worked with her in her job. Mm-hmm. And she fought all the time for that. And in the particular political party that she was devoted to, she was very active in her political party, she felt, and she, she was a deeply committed practicing Christian, that she felt that her expression of defending against prejudice was an outpouring of her understanding of the love of Christ. And, and she said that clearly. She believed this love, that she, the way that she was uh, giving of her life to defend the, uh, those who were prejudiced against in culture, that she was living out the love of Christ. Well, then, of course, Roe versus Wade, Wade occurs in the early 70s. And as her own political party became one of the defenders of the right to abortion, later called pro-choice, she adopted that as a part of her platform against the prejudiced, and she would defend the right to abortion as an expression of God's love for the woman. And the example she would always use if a woman becomes pregnant through rape or through incest, or even through um, adultery, fornication, that what's best for this woman is the most loving thing we can do to allow her make the choice that she needs to make. This was her understanding of love, given her situation and her values. And it never crossed her mind, as I talked with her later in life, to think about what's the most loving thing to do for the child in the womb. And a good example of that is there was a great man in the history of the United States who, in fact, was born on a South Sea island as a result of an adulterous affair. And in that adulterous affair, the father abandoned the mother. And if that mother was living today, she would be encouraged for her good to abort that child, but she didn't. And that boy eventually became an assistant to George Washington to the Revolutionary War. That man eventually convinced New York to adopt the Constitution, and that man eventually became the first Secretary of the Treasury of the United States. That man was Alexander Hamilton. Now, 
we never know what a, a, a fetus will become regardless of how they were conceived. And so the issue is, how do you define love? And if we allow our situation, our passions, our feelings, the pressures of our relationship to define the interpretation of Scripture, not only do we end up redefining love as a feeling, love as a kind act, in other words, what we think is best for another person, but we end up redefining God himself. If God is love and we are free to define love as we believe it to be, we end up redefining God. God is a passion. God will not judge these people. God will not demand that they commit themselves to feeling sorry. God demands that we are tolerant of any person's, if a person just feels that they're of a different sex, well, then we need to accept that. That's yeah. the most loving thing to do. And pretty soon, we have no values left. And that is the way many heresies are formed. We emphasize one aspect of Scripture over and above others, and to maintain our position, we end up having to ignore whole blocks of Scripture. If we, so. if we interpret love as tolerance, yeah. God is love, and if we interpret love as tolerance, then we interpret God as tolerance. And we recognize, and we eventually identify, that any rules that may have been established by the church throughout the centuries were obviously wrong because we have a God of tolerance, which has, I think, been one of the reasons that we see a diminishing commitment to the belief in God in our culture, a, a diminishing commitment to uh, the virtues of the Christian life, a diminishing of commitment to a, a, an involvement in church. God is tolerant. God is loving. God is freedom. God gives us freedom to guide our lives. I don't need church. I don't need anybody to tell me. I know what love is. And so pretty soon it's redefined. And also it it's almost creates a gag order to any other understanding of the scripture because if you contradict that position in any way quote you're being intolerant unquote and uh, you're backed in a corner interesting verse 17 in this is love perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so are we in this world we've if we, on our own interpretation, maybe because of the pressures of our marriage, the pressures of what our children are uh, decrying for us to give into because the tolerance pushed on by our culture, redefine uh, what we believe our virtues, our vices, well then, are we in fact confident that we're preparing for the day of judgment? Or don't even believe it in anymore? If we don't have to say we're sorry, well, then, uh, is it fair that we're going to have a God that's going to judge us for how we've lived? We're pushing this to the envelope to indicate something very important. This is why the scriptures were given to us, not as some independent book that fell out of heaven, but as a book that came through to him, through his church, as a part of the wider tradition. We have the oral tradition that was passed on from Christ through his apostles called the deposit of faith. And part of that 
in time was written down as the apostles themselves were trying to communicate the truth to the churches, as those churches were trying to understand the oral teachings of Christ through his apostles, and as they were being confused, the apostles who couldn't always travel to those churches would write letters. That became the New Testament. And to me, Jim, I just thought of a great example of that is in Mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians when Paul can't get to the church to deal with some of their questions that they had sent with them by letter. But one of the questions was what to do with a guy in the church who was living with his stepmother. Right? Isn't that how it goes? There was a man in the church living in an adulterous of fornication with his stepmother, and it was yeah, a great it, scandal it, it in the church. To, it seems to indicate that his father was dead, and he had married his stepmother. So the, they were wondering, well, given love, and God is love, and we're to love one another, and I love God, love, what do we do with this man? How do we handle it? And it implies that they themselves, as young Christians, trying to understand how to live this out, what do we do? And, and so, they thought, in fact, in the context, they were proud of, the church in Corinth was proud of itself that they were exhibiting freedom in Christ in their relation with this young man. I mean, if if it weren't for the letter that Paul wrote to that church, they would have been the beginning of what we're experiencing in our culture today, mm-hmm. where anybody can decide they are what they think they are, regardless of what biology says. And this, and so our loving thing to do is to accept them as they are. And there's so many crazy things happening in our culture today, and even being defended and and enforced by our our government. It's getting crazy. But Paul wrote a letter telling them to confront them. In fact, what Paul was doing them was reminding them of what Jesus had told them to do when you have a problem in the church. You confront the person. If he doesn't listen, then two or three have to go and confront him. If he doesn't respond, then bring him before the whole church. In other words, we see in in the words of Christ, establishing the church as the final judge for things on earth. and they're the, It's the beginning of the kingdom. And if the, he doesn't respond to the church, then he's to put, be put out of the church, which is exactly what Paul says to be done for the sake of that man's soul. It wasn't to condemn him. It was to excommunicate the person so that they would come to their senses and then repent and come back. Because love be means welcome. love requires that we recognize our sinfulness. Love requires that we recognize how we hurt other people, how unloving we've been, how rude and uh, uncaring. It requires that we recognize that, we fess up to it, we confess it, uh, and we grow in humility, not in the arrogance of, I don't need to say I'm sorry. Anyway, there's an example of how a verse, which on the surface can seem very simple, but have many layers, which is why we need the blessing of the church as our guide to help us know that love requires suffering. Love requires sacrifice. That's why Mother Teresa, that's why Maximilian Kolbe are lifted up as the great saint models of humility and love because of how they gave their life. All right, Jim, let's pass from that and let's turn over to you because I think you've got even a more uh, yes. verse, a, a verse that you might consider even harder than what I look yes, at. Yes, definitely. Before I read that, 
I'm going to preface it with a short um, scripture, again from 1 John, uh, this time from chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing this to you so that you may not sin. But if one does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the expiation for our sins, not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. Now, that most people would have no problem with. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. But there's also another passage, and that is in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 26. And how do we reconcile these two? Okay. And this passage bothered me for a long time. For if we sin deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. A man who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy at the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the man who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And it's like, is this coming from the same God? Is this inspired by the same <laughs> Holy Spirit? But... Um, If we try to proof text, we do run into problems, which I was, I popularly did when I was a Protestant. That's the way I was taught was to proof text. But not we we didn't look at it. We didn't have that word for it. But we believe no, no, no. But that's basically what we did. And what we do is we find verses, and this is actually a, a clearly expressed technique that has historical sources all the way back to the Westminster Confession and, and others mm-hmm. that would say that, in other words, Scripture interprets itself. If a particular verse isn't clear, then other verses in the inspired canon of Scripture are there to explain. So we would find two or three other verses, and that would explain it, and we figured, therefore, it was cleared up. Right. And another thing that helps with the passage like this is to read the context of uh, the writer to the Hebrews. Some believe uh, that it was Paul, but the majority of church history, no one knows who wrote Hebrews. In fact, Tertullian in the third century said only God knows who wrote Hebrews. But we do know the context. It seems to be written to Jewish converts possibly in Palestine, maybe in Italy. And it seems to have been written near the time of the fall of Jerusalem, maybe around the year 68. And uh, these Jewish Christians are being tempted to go back to traditional Judaism, to leave the covenant of Christ and go back to the covenant of Moses. And what the writer uh, is saying here is, If you go back to the Mosaic Covenant and Jerusalem falls, because in the verses before, he's talking about sin offerings. 
in the old covenant, if you sinned, you went to the temple, you offered a sin offering, your sins were forgiven in, in the context of the old covenant. But uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you reject Christ, who died once for all, and you go back to the old covenant, you have no options. There is no sin offering, especially when the temple is destroyed. Yeah, and I, let me jump in a little bit, Jim, because you picked a great verse, because I know that when I was a Calvinist Presbyterian mm-hmm. that believed once saved, always saved. And I believe that because, on the one hand, we believe that our will was so depraved because of the mm-hmm. sin of Adam that uh, nothing we could do was apart from grace. So if we had faith in Christ, it was a gift totally of, of grace, had nothing to, we couldn't claim a bit for it, which also meant we couldn't lose it since it was a gift. So there were a number of verses, including chapter six of Hebrews, which <laughs> is another parallel passage that's very difficult because it talks about someone who commits apostasy. So in this idea of if you sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's all kinds of problems with that verse that a a Calvinist, first of all, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Well, you know, we're looking to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. But if you turn your back on that sacrifice, there's no other sacrifice right. to expiate your relationship with God. And also for you Calvinists, this caused a problem. He's talking to Christians. Right. He's talking to Christians who are there because they obviously received grace. Otherwise, they wouldn't be Christians. They wouldn't be believers. So uh, the question is, if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, the, the problem here is that Luther and Calvin, the question rose, does it make a difference anymore to our salvation if we sin deliberately anymore? Because we're By saved. Way, Luther, Luther did not like this book. Yeah, yeah. And uh, today I know of, you go online, you'll find many non-Catholic Christians, fundamentalists, that really don't think Hebrews should be in the, in the New Testament. Um, it doesn't refer to them because it was referring to Jews, so, former Jews. So, But, um, you know, when I think about this, this idea, it reminds me, and this is something I came to realize later, that if you look historically at the early church and especially uh, the practice in over the centuries as the idea of penance became fine-tuned in the church, mm-hmm. And, you know, what about a person who uh, had had faith in Christ, but when they were uh, dragged before Caesar and uh, denied their faith before Caesar? Well, should they be allowed back in the church? Uh, There was a big controversy in the third century. Yes, there was a heretical movement uh, started by a priest in Rome by the name of Novation. Uh, who who believed that if you apostatized, and later his group believed if you fell into any serious sin, you were cut off from the church and you had no no prospects of salvation at all. 
and they used as one of their proof texts this scripture this as well as hebrews 6 and as well as some passages you read from first john chapter 2 but there also um, were other scriptures in there that say um, uh, no one who abides in him sins this is in first john 3 Mm -hmm. sins no one who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who does right is righteous as he is righteous. He who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God commits sin. Now those are, again, how do you apply those verses? I mean, I, I sin, yeah. and I believe I was born of God by grace. Yeah. So how do you interpret this? And, and what I was going to say, Jim, is, Jim, <clears throat> is it reminds me that <clears throat> when our Lord met with his apostles after his resurrection, before he was ascended, you can imagine, if, if you can, the, uh, the shock to the disciples, the apostles, on the resurrected Lord. And what a thrill. Their lives are being changed every time that their Lord met with them in the weeks between the resurrection and the ascension. And the scriptures say, on the one hand, that our Lord met with them often, but it doesn't say what he told them. But he did promise back in John 14, 15, and 16 that later when the Holy Spirit came, we see it first come in John 20, uh, and then later in the fullness at Pentecost, that one of the things that the Spirit will do was help them remember everything he taught them. But as you reflect on their time, <clears throat> it's unlikely that our Lord was able to cover everything. I'm one that believes that the one main thing that Jesus taught them was about the Trinity. I can't imagine the most clear, most central doctrine of all of our faith our Lord not talking about that and explaining God right. the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. But later, as people on their own interpretation began pulling it, then the church had to clarify it again. What was it we were taught? But one of the areas, it seems, that was not clear was this relationship that's referred to here in, in Hebrews 10, in Hebrews mm-hmm. 6, and in John 3, 1 John 3, and in all the things you talked about. In other words, when a person after baptism sins, what do we do? And that was a big controversy for three, four, five centuries. Does a person get one chance, two chances? Do, do they have to do public penance, a horrendous form or a minor form? And now all we do is sin. We go into confession and we say a, heart, a, a Hail Mary, and that su- seems sufficient. What's the theology behind all that? That doesn't seem to be clarified, and it took a long time for that to be clarified. Yes. And... Um... And it also uh, the church struggled with, how do we know this person has repented? That was one of the reasons for penance, was to be able to prove outwardly you had repented. You weren't forgiven by that penance. We still aren't forgiven by doing penance. But, um, but the church needed to know for her discipline. And... Um, But notice here that it emphasizes in the very first sentence, 
if we sin deliberately, this person knows they're sinning. Another, in, in our terminology, this is a mortal sin. They know they're doing it. They know it's sin, and they're turning their back on the, the grace of Christ knowingly. And again, now you're tying it back in with what John said in his first letter. Yes, deadly um, sin in this translation, I believe. Right, and um, where it talks about mortal sin, one who sins unto death in the end of First John. Um, and, you know, our point being that even this example, for if we sin deliberately. Now, for example, when you're going with Scripture alone, and I'm going to just interpret that, I can use that word deliberately to uh, downplay everything that's said here. Because mm-hmm. if I say, well, it's when it's only when a person, this only applies to a person who, and then you, you go and explain it. You take that word mm-hmm. deliberately, and then you run with it. You theologize with it, with it, and then you can use that to say, well, none of us are fault guilty of this to the extent that he's talking about. And so we come up with an explanation. We take a hard verse, seemingly make it clear, and then move on mm-hmm. and then deal with it. But that's why this verse is one that most Protestant ministers never preach on, and they avoid because it does not fit. But it is very, it's a very, the the writer of Hebrews is talking very seriously in this passage. And this is inspired scripture. We need to take it seriously. All right, Jim, thank you for that. We just, again, audience, we just talked a little bit on these. Our, our hope is to just spark with you a desire, on the one hand, for a love for Scripture and a desire to study it every day, but to also recognize in the other the danger, being careful of how we let our passions, our situation, our culture, uh, and even the ways that we're blind to our own prejudices influence Scripture. And so that's why, on the one hand, we have the Scripture. On the other hand, we should have the Catechism. And the beauty of the Catechism is that you can look in the back and you can look at the footnotes and you can find where the Catechism may deal with this very passage to see where the church has addressed this to help us understand this issue of sin and how it affects our relationship with God. Thank you again for joining us on the program. If you would go to chnetwork.org, you can find out about the work of the Coming Home Network. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. If you have any questions you'd like to pass along or comments, please do so at questions at deepinscripture.com. God bless you. Look forward to being with you again next week.